Hello and Karibuni to Expulsion at 50, a podcast series created to commemorate the 50-year anniversary of the expulsion of Asians from Uganda. My name is Dola Vasani. In this episode, I talk to Shahina Fazel. Shahina has been on the podcast journey since its conception back in April 2020. I am forever grateful for her continuous presence, contribution and support. I hope you enjoy listening to her experiences and reflections. Who I am. <laughs> I'm an immigrant <laughs> uh, who, who's traveled the world, really. Uh, but yeah, an immigrant who, who came to UK in 1971, a year before the expulsion, uh, and spent nearly 40 years in the UK, uh, growing up, doing education, uh, working. And then in 2009, my partner and I moved to Crete, the wonderful island of Crete in Greece. And it's a different journey living here for us as immigrants again, uh, learning the language, learning the culture, uh, and geographically being in the middle of the planet, I think, uh, you know, the island of Crete is between east and west, and I think north and south. So it's nice position to be in, really. So, so that's where we are. Um, and we have a lot of time to reflect on things, our lives, um, and also uh, have a more relaxed pace of life, too. So that's what we're doing now. For 10 years, we've been doing that. So it's been a it's been a nice journey. It's no regrets whatsoever of moving to Crete. And my parents were born in Tanzania, I, or Tanganyika then. I was born in Tanzania, um, in a small town of Tanga. My connection to Uganda um, is that I see similarities uh, in lifestyles, outlook, values among South Asians who are in East Africa. Uh, and we've all got Indian heritage and we've all been exposed to African life and African heritage. Uh, and we've also ex been exposed to British life. And these factors, all these factors influence um, the type of people we are. Uh, and I think it makes us adaptable to different cultures very easily. And that's the richness to our connection to East Africa. 
which I've discovered only recently that we have such a rich background. In many ways, that experience has made it easier for me to adapt to life in Greece. We, we, we moved uh, across three continents and, and uh, a lot of scholars describe us as twice migrants because we moved from India, East Africa to wherever the European or North American country we live in uh, or double diaspora. And I, I think we should see it positively rather than negatively um, because what I found in my experience of living in Britain, people are only exposed to one culture and what they imagine is one homogenous culture. Uh, whereas I think we have an advantage. Uh, we can understand things in different cultures. And in a globalized world that we are living in now, whether we like the globalized world or we don't like it, that's, that's very necessary. Uh, and it, I think it makes it easier for us. I'm quite excited about it <laughs> in many ways that, you know, this is who I am. And, and, and therefore, if you put me any, anywhere in the world or any planet, I would adapt and I'd, I'd be comfortable. So at the age of 13, you moved to the UK. Shahina, can you tell us why your parents chose to leave Tanzania? Yeah, it was at a time when the Africanization policies in, in all three East African countries were being put in place. Uh, in Tanzania, it was being done more slowly, but in Kenya and Uganda, it was happening at a much faster pace. And obviously, you know, we have, friends and relatives in Kenya and Uganda, my dad would talk to. Um, and it seemed, uh, or our family decided, uh, that maybe it might be a good idea for us not to stay there. Yeah, it's um, interesting you talk about the, the Africanization policies uh, in all three countries. So what did, what did that look like in, in Tanzania? In Tanzania, well, in 1967, there was the Arusha Declaration, basically socialist policies where they were saying people could only own one home they lived in, uh, and the rest had to be uh, given to the government. And the business would be the only one business that would do, and the rest belonged to the government. So that's when it started in 1967. And it wasn't kind of very forceful policy. They implemented it very gradually. In terms of our schooling, what happened was that on Saturdays, we would go to a village outside Tanga and help clean up the village, maybe sweep the road or help uh, plant crops or irrigate crops and so on. So that was quite a good experience to make people self reliant, self-sufficient uh, in terms of what they grew. Uh, and I think the idea was uh, on 
you know, by President Nyerere at the time is not to be dependent upon aid. Going to the villages kind of opened my eyes as to how, you know, people in rural areas lived. We lived in a, in a town. Um, so that was quite interesting for me, uh, that people would be independent and self-sufficient. Uh, but somehow it wasn't acceptable to the Asian community, those kinds of policies. Uh, and not acceptable to the wider kind of uh, European North American communities as well, because they wanted to pump aid in, they wanted to get resources that were in Tanzania. So it didn't quite work that way as Nyerere had intended it to be. So that's how I think Africanization started in Tanzania. Uh, and of course, there was kind of um, in the civil service, which was dominated by the Asians from colonial times, they were wanting more Africans to have jobs. And rightly so, I agree with that. There was a fear of these policies being excluding they was. Uh, uh, so that's how it kind of started, uh, very slowly, but very gently. It wasn't kind of uh, forceful, as forceful as in the two neighboring countries of Tanzania. Maybe because we had a certain state status in East Africa as Asians, and that status was changing. Some, some did adapt, some did kind of integrate fully into that. Majority, I think, didn't and left eventually. The changes which were being brought about is that there was this hierarchical structure, which is the white colonialists at the top, the Asians in the middle, and the Africans at the bottom. And post-independence, post-colonial time, it all reversed. The Africans came to the top, the Asians still remain in the middle, um, and, and the whites left. That was the kind of the political independence. And what didn't happen very quickly after independence was economic independence. The Africans were still poor, still uh, existing at subsistence level, majority of them, and they never moved up, you know. So, uh, and that's why I think the expulsion happened in Uganda, because I think Idi Amin wanted to tell the Africans in Uganda that, look, we can get rid of the Asians and maybe there will be some sort of economic independence. Uh, but what he didn't do was change the colonial structure which still existed. So the middle-class Africans took over the Asian, the positions the Asians were occupying. Um, so the hierarchical structure still stays, still there. I don't think it's gone yet. Somehow, how do we get it out of our heads that the colonial framework has to go you know, and restart again with a clean slate. The impression that the uh, Idi Amin expelled Asians to distract uh, attention from more serious issues going 
uh, on in Uganda. What happened in Uganda was the lack of uh, economic prosperity that the Ugandans were promised would happen after independence. But after political in independence, economic independence was a distant vision. It wasn't, didn't become a reality. And it seems that Idi Amin decided to speed up this vision, at least in the imagination of the Ugandans, uh, and by expelling the Asians who were, until 1972, the key players in the economy of Uganda. Uh, and he expelled them and he thought that the, the Asians would be replaced by the Africans. So that, I think, why the expulsion happened. Uh, some people say it was racist, others say uh, it was he wanted to uh, teach Britain a lesson, whatever. There are many, many stories going on, but I think the key underlying thing was let's promise, uh, let's show the Africans in Uganda, then we can achieve something. I mean, it's very similar to what politicians do now and have done forever. He's no different, I don't think. No. Yeah, it's a kind of a populist approach, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> Okay, so let's let's move on to the podcast. And you know, as if you have been, you know, on this journey with me almost from the beginning, which has been absolutely wonderful. And you've listened to, you know, all of them. Most of them, yeah. The that have been uh, released and the ones that haven't been released as yet. And I just wonder, Shahina, you know, what is it that sort of it, what comes out for you, what, what things that stand out for you as, as a result of listening to these incredibly personal stories of people? That there are three major things, three major things that have come out. And, and let me, um, and they are migration, immigration, identities, which is very important these days, um, and the impact of colonization, I think, yeah. So let me talk a little bit about each one of these. I think as for migration and immigration, most of us are told about these issues concerning migration and immigration by the politicians and by the media. Very, most of us have very little first-hand knowledge of, of what is happening in immigration. And unless if we listen to personal experiences of people, we have very little idea of why they're moving countries. In the case of Uganda nations, um, there is a media image, I think, which is extremely positive, uh, having read stuff about it, stating how well the refugees who arrived in 1972 have managed to settle and become successful in Britain and make major contributions to British life. In our personal experiences and in the podcasts, uh, we know that not all Uganda nations have been successful. Uh, and some have had a 
very hard time adapting, finding work, overcoming racism, um, and growing up in a different environment to what they were used to. So I think, you know, the podcasts are very important in raising all those issues, personal stories of people. On the second item, in terms of identities, uh, this is very personal issue. Uh, and I think we all create our own identities that are comfortable for us. And we all have different experiences to draw upon to construct these identities. But what I think is interesting, and I think podcasts, the podcast explore this, uh, is that when people leave the home country and move to another country, um, because they've been expelled or because of war, that is forced re removal, means that there's a lot of trauma, there's a lot of grief, and there's a lot of anger. And I think in many cases, the trauma or the grief has not been dealt with because life has to go on. Uh, and I think some of that pain comes across in the podcast. Uh, and the podcasts do highlight that uh, from what I've heard. Um, and the third thing, the impact of colonization, um, we are still living in the shadow of colonization uh, as the impact of Inner Powell's Rivers of Blood speech in 1968 and Prime Minister Thatcher echoing that when talking about being swamped by people of a different culture. And more recently, all these issues were brought up during the campaign for Brexit. There are positive signs uh, movements like Black Lives Matter and others have begun to change the narrative and remind people about the underbelly of colonialism. Uh, uh, and we're seeing a lot of that, the changing of the narrative. And I, I think we need to continue along this path and inform the public of what went on. And the podcasts play a part in informing the public of what went on, I think. So those are the kind of three things that have been highlighted for me by the podcasts uh, and what the Black Lives Movement and other movements which were part of it is sparking up is this re-examining what has gone on. And that is a long process. It's not an, a things which will have change in a few years. It will be a generation or two before things change. Shahina, I know you've been doing your own research on the role of the British media at the time of the expulsion. Can you tell us more about it? The paper I'm currently working on um, has an interesting genesis or beginning. Uh, its origin started last summer when we were during the pandemic in 2020, when we discussed the 
the possibilities of the podcasts uh, to mark the 50th anniversary of the expulsion. This idea of the paper came into my head and also the listening to a couple of the podcasts, the early podcasts. Uh, and I realized that there had been studies done on how the national media in various countries had covered the expulsion. I mean, for example, Zain Lalani's work, uh, Uganda Nation Expulsion 90 Days and Beyond Through the Eyes of the International Press has documented that. And of course, there are other studies too by other people. But what I discovered was that very few studies had looked at how local and regional press um, had covered uh, the arrival of Uganda nations into Britain. Because we all know the story about Lester Mercury placing adverts in the Uganda Argus saying, don't come to Leicester, Leicester's full, we have no housing, we can't, we don't want you basically. That was what the message was. And I wanted to look, explore that a bit further. Was it just Leicester Mercury or was it other local regional newspapers doing the same? So I'm looking at the local and regional newspaper archive and tying it with the arrivals of the Uganda nations at Stansted and then being transferred to various camps of which there were many in the UK. And then from the camps, they were being distributed to other parts of the country. And basically they were told not to go into the red areas. The red areas where um, the, there were many Asian or Asians already living there. And they didn't want them to go there because they wanted them to go to other parts where there were fewer Asians. So that's the discussion I'm looking at that was taking place in the local new and regional newspapers. Uh, and I hope that the findings will add to the body uh, of work on the relationship between migration and media. That's, that's the ultimate aim. And it's interesting also because the study is based at a time when there was no social media and no digital sources existed. So local and regional newspapers were important sources of information. Yes. And how are you going about getting the, the material then? The material, I get it from the British Newspaper Archive, uh, which is uh, run by the British Library. So I subscribe to that. And what are some of your findings thus far? Uh, thus far, it's quite interesting because I'm looking at headlines to begin with. And the headlines are interesting. I get the feeling that there was hostility already to uh, the Uganda nations arriving in various areas. It's interesting that the London newspapers, the, the Middlesex Observer and, and so on, and the Ealing Gazette are quite positive, but go outside of London, it's different. So I have to kind of look at what kind of framework I can use to show how the details, the, the actual language used uh, by the local newspapers. Um, and that would be interesting. It might have to be two papers. One would just look at headlines and the other one 
would look at the articles in more detail. So how does all this shape your views on immigration and particularly the policies of Greece and the European Union? Part of the reason I think I wanted to do this study was also what's going on in Greece, because what we see in the news as the uh, people who cross the Mediterranean from Turkey and come into Greece or some of the Greek islands, uh, initially when this started happening, there was, they were quite hospitable because there were smaller numbers coming through and they knew that these people, refugees, asylum seekers who were coming would then move up northwards to other European countries because they never wanted to stay in Greece to begin with. Um, now, a lot of the refugees are stuck here because the Northern European countries don't want them or don't want to deal with this situation. Um, and it's the Greek government has no resources to deal with it. EU claims that it has given Greece a fair amount of money to deal with this situation. I don't know where that money is going. And this, the conditions which these refugees live in is dreadful. It is absolutely nightmarish. Um, but what has happened, it's very interesting, is that when we first arrived here 10 years ago, I hardly saw a brown or a black face, very few. And it was a novelty to see a brown. Now I see many more because not the current Greek government, but the previous Greek government, the Syriza, the left of center government, had a policy to distribute the refugees from the camps to various areas in Greece. And several came to Crete. And they are all working in tourism industry, working on farms. Um, you know, doing the hard jobs, um, and we see many more now. And so that's kind of, I think, ultimately, the Greeks will begin to accept that this is the reality, you know, um, of, of our globalized world, that people will be coming from all parts of the world um, to either use Greece as a temporary base, or maybe it becomes a more permanent base for people. And, and maybe it'll lead to Greece becoming more multicultural, we hope. We hope, um, you know, so let's see. post any comments you may have and do share this podcast with your friends and family. Till next time, stay safe and thank you for listening. <music>